Well, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles now to the book of 1 Peter. First Peter chapter two. Picking up where we left off last week in verse eleven, we will read verse eleven and twelve. This text kind of comes in a transition of the book. Verse twelve really ties in with what is about to follow at the end of chapter two and then into chapter 3 as Peter gives various instructions on how believers are to conduct themselves, how we are uh, to live uh, in front of the Gentiles, in front of uh, unbelievers, how we are to live under the authorities that are in place, how we are to live in our family context, and of course even at the time, uh, masters and slaves, and what that relationship was to look like. So we're in a little transition here, again, as verse 12 is really tying in with, with what follows. So our focus this morning as we read verses 11 and 12 is, is really going to be on verse 11 and this warfare that we find ourselves in uh, now. So if you will, uh, look with me and, and read uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Peter's writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul." your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If you will, go with me again to the Lord. Father, as those who have come to know You by Your grace and mercy, by the powerful working of the Spirit and the new birth, we find ourselves now in a position that we had not known before. One in which our relationship both to You and to our own sin has changed. One time we lived for the passions of the flesh. At one time we indulged in sin and debauchery and self righteousness. At one time this was what our heart longed for, it longed and loved the darkness. When you came into our lives, when you called us out of the darkness and into Your marvelous light. You changed us so that our deepest longing is for holiness. It's 
to know you and to seek your face. And our hatred for sin is increased. And we ask, Lord, on a daily basis that you would free us from the evils of our sin. Yet as we just sung many times, it seems as if we are turned over to them. They are aggravated within us. And the temptations arise and surround us like a great enemy that we cannot defeat. And in those moments, we are in desperation cast before your feet is the very place you would have us. So Lord, I pray for us this morning as we meditate on these truths, especially and prepare ourselves for the warfare that we are indeed in. That we would not fight the battles against the flesh in the power of the flesh. Lord, that we would be walking in the Spirit and casting every ounce of our being at Your feet so that You would be our Deliverer and You would receive all the praise and glory and honor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this hymn that we just sang by John Newton. Newton lifts up a prayer to God that reflects the sincere desire of every true Christian. He says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace prays that he might know more of the saving works of God and that, that he might all the more, all the more earnestly seek the face of God. That's his prayer. That's his desire. And that's every Christian's desire. Is it not? That's what we often pray. More faith. More grace. More of your face, O Lord. We want to know the Lord even more. We want our faith to be strong. We want it to be that kind of faith that can move mountains. We don't want to be the kind of people who are saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We want to be those people with a strong faith. We want to be a people who are full of love, fulfill our Lord's command that we are to love one another as Christ loved us. We want to taste even more of His saving power. And we want our hearts and our minds to be fully fixed upon the face of God in Christ. And our whole lives so consumed by Jesus that the, the appeal of the world finishes. Christian, that is the greatest longing of the soul. It's, it's the greatest longing of a soul that has been revived by the grace of God. 
apart from Christ, that longing, that desire is absent. doesn't exist. It was never present. It's, it's not the desire of someone who's still dead in sin. The unbelieving heart has no real desire for God. It is not pursuing Him. It is not seeking Him. It is not going after Him in any way. It is at enmity with Him. It may have a desire for religious observance. It may have a desire for forms of asceticism. It may have a desire for respectability. It may even have a a desire, as it often does, for the avoidance of temporal or even eternal consequences for sin. But it has no real desire for God doesn't want Him. It may want benefits that come from Him, but it doesn't want Him. When the grace of God, the powerful working of the Spirit of God, revives a soul that was at one time dead, it gives the soul a taste of the goodness, of the mercies and grace of God, and the soul longs for that all the more. It's like manna that comes down from heaven and we need it new and fresh every day. This is what Newton was praying for. This is what Christians pray for. But of course, how we want the prayer answered is usually altogether different from how God has designed for that prayer to be As Isaiah says, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. The answer that we truly want is usually to bypass the whole process of sanctification and to skip right on into glory. We want all of the remnants of sin done away with immediately. When we ask to be able to seek more earnestly the face of God, when we ask for more grace to walk in holiness, we, we tend to just want our hearts so transformed that the mere sight of sin would just immediately disgust us. We want temptations to have no strength at all. As though in the very moment a temptation begins to arise, we would be filled with such a heavenly mindedness that it would have no power over it, over us at all. We would be able to step on it in an instant and have victory without even much of a fight. It would have nothing attractive about it. We desire that it be such an obvious enemy that we would simply laugh at its pathetic attempt to ensnare us. Again, this is is more similar to what our experience in glory would be like when we no longer have sin dwelling in our bodies, when our bodies themselves have been transformed by the power of the resurrection and we inherit what the Apostle Paul refers to our spiritual bodies, those those bodies that are no longer in their fallen state, but are are so filled by the Holy Spirit that 
Sin is impossible. Temptation will never arise. And if a mere hypothetical chance it ever were, it would not even get a hold. That's the, that's the body to come. That's glory. But until that day arrives, our temptations will be very real. And they will be very deceitful. And they will be very deadly. And they will be so because the sin that remains within us, as Peter says, is at war with our souls. This is what I want us this morning to consider especially as we meditate on these truths of our text. The reality the war that rages within us. As you look at the text again, I want you to notice in verse 11 that Peter gives a command to Christians. He says that we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Before we unpack this particular phrase a little bit more, I want you to notice the pastoral concern that is present in this command. Peter begins here by addressing these Christians as beloved. Some translations put this as as dear friends. King James says dear beloved. I think the latter is the most accurate. It's capturing here Peter's heart. These believers. He loves these Christians because, like him, they love Christ. They have come to know Christ. They've come to know the same Jesus that he has known and believed in and, and many times stumbled in his faithfulness and following and yet been restored by. This is the Lord that they love, that he loves, and he loves them. He considers himself to be not only an apostle of the church, not only a, a foundation of the church, but he considers himself, as we find later in 1 Peter 5, to be a fellow elder, a pastor. He's a pastor who shepherds the flock of God. And as a pastor, his heart is concerned for the spiritual well-being of the flock. So his command here, this is is not a command that's given to be a burden on a people who are already burdened by the various trials that they are facing. This is a command that is for their good. It is the role of pastors. Not to be some kind of life coach who formulates motivational speeches and attaches clever little sayings to it with the occasional Bible verse. It is the role of pastors to oversee, as Hebrews 13.17 says, to watch over souls. Every pastor, every pastor that I've always been most concerned with my soul, with how I'm doing 
spiritually, with what my walk with the Lord is like. They follow the model that is set forth in Scripture. They do their best to encourage when they sense that the sheep need to be encouraged and they, they rebuke and they exhort when they sense that's what the sheep need to hear in that moment. And here, this is what Peter is doing. He is not most concerned with the various trials that these believers are going through because he knows that these trials are the refining work of the sovereign hand of God to refine their faith and make it like pure gold. There's always going to be trials. But that's not his greatest concern here. What he's most concerned about is their spiritual well-being and how they are continuing to walk faithfully in the grace of God in and through these various trials. He's concerned about their souls. How their souls are holding up as all of these things are going on around them, as all of these things are raging even within them. So he speaks to them out of a heart of love and he urges them to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's, he's urging them. This is not a suggestion. This is not a, a mere piece of advice. I urge you with all the desperation I can muster that you hear the the intensity of this word, the, the seriousness of this command, I, I urge you, beloved, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, this leads to another observation I, I want you to see here, which is that this command to abstain from the passions of the flesh follows the truth that Christians, these Christians, we Christians, have become something new. The command follows reality that believers have become something new. In chapter 1, if you look there in verse 14, Peter says there, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your Former ignorance. Passions of the flesh and the passions of ignorance are a part of our former way of life. It was what we were consumed and enslaved by before the grace of God came to us and before we were born again and before we were made His children. But now, we are just that. We have become just that. We have been made God's children. We are, as we saw last week, a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation and a people for His own possession. God has called us out of the darkness and into His marvelous light. 
We are now sojourners and exiles in this world because our citizenship is ultimately a heavenly one. And our greatest hopes are no longer rooted in this fallen, fading, passing world. So this command to abstain from the passions of the flesh is, is not a command that must be obeyed in order to become the children of God. It is what logically flows from already having become God's people. Having said this, however, what we also find here is that the sinful passions of the flesh do not disappear once we have become Christians. There would be no need to exhort Christians to abstain from the passions of the flesh if once they were born again, they were all immediately extinguished. It is not the case. The passions disappear. There is still sin that remains that we have to fight against and that daily makes its assaults against us. The difference now is that we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us who supplies us with the strength needed to withstand the assaults of sin. Whereas before, we were nothing more than slaves to our passions. We lived under a harsh slave master. And yet, even as harsh and destructive as that master was to us, we delighted in that sin. There is now, however, a new king who has established his throne within our souls. And he has done so by dethroning the prior king of sin and death. So because of this new king who occupies the seat of power within us, we can indeed engage this warfare and battle against our fleshly passions. One Puritan, John Owen, illustrated this new reality like this. He said in essence that the passions of the natural man who doesn't know Christ are, are like a river. And the spring that the river flows from is his dead soul. It is constantly gushing forth a flood of evil. And, and you can try and put a dam in the river. You can dam it up with resolutions. You can dam it up with religious works and ceremonies. You can dam it up with, with laws, both civil and ceremonial and religious laws. And you can dam it up with vows and, and promises to do good and to do better. But as long as the spring is producing fresh supplies of water, the river is going to continue to swell up until finally it breaks over that little dam. But if the spring is dried up by the Spirit's regenerating grace, then putting a stop to the flow of the river of our sinful passions becomes an actual reality. 
it becomes a, a possibility. We are able to, to stop the flow of, of the river before it breaks over uncontrollably. That as long as the river still remains and as long as our sin dwells within the members of our body, it will be constantly crashing against the dams that we put in the river, trying to break through. And that crashing against the dam is what Owen refers to as the lusts or the passions and the desires of the flesh. Our sin trying to break out and trying to, to bring a flood into our lives. This is the conflict that we experience and that we have to attend to on a daily basis. A conflict that is not hopeless, of course, because the spring has been dried up by the regenerating grace of God. But a conflict that is nevertheless real and the conflict and the problem that we we must engage in battle with. In this conflict, it is important that we understand the nature of our enemy. This is what I want to draw your attention to next. Peter calls our sin here. Remaining indwelling sin within the members of our bodies. He, he calls it here the passions of the flesh. This is the same phrase that Paul uses in Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17 when he says that the, the passions of the flesh are against the Spirit. It's the same phrase that John uses in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 when he says there, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world, the desires or the passions of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These, these passions here, these internal desires are always of such a kind that they are against the Spirit. They are against the will of God. And they're not just contrary to the will of God and the being just the, the mere opposite of something. They are, they are actually working to oppose the will of God. They work against the Spirit. They are desires that arise from within our members. They are, they are desires that are natural to the old man natural to the world. They not only include things like sexual lusting and perversion and various forms of sensuality that Paul speaks of, of course, in Galatians 5 and elsewhere. These pornographic desires. But they include things as well like, like covetousness. Lusting after possessions. The pride of, of life. Include as well things like, like fears. Your fears can be sinful passions 
of the flesh. Particularly if they are fears that are leading you and convincing you that it is acceptable to disobey God. Many times people justify their fears as, as being valid. But the moment that those very fears lead you to know the Word of God and to disregard it, those fears themselves have shown themselves to be ungodly fears. We're not fearing God. We're not fearing the Lord. You are fearing man. Or you are fearing death. Or you are fearing something that the Lord has conquered. But you are not fearing the Lord. So these are, these are passions of various kinds that they are they are passions, very real ones that you feel. They are affections that, that have a real enticing element to them. But even more, Peter says that they wage war against your soul. Now in a war, an enemy usually uses one of two ways to to conquer the opposition. Deceit, scheming, or an all-out assault. And sin is the very same. Our sinful passions sometimes use deceit to enslave our soul. It lays a, a trap for us. It surprises us. It, it waits until we're not watching. We're not being careful. And then it leaps on us like a lion leaping on a gazelle. Catches us when we're not ready. While we're diligently and perhaps even with much meditation reading the Scriptures, we may feel that, that we are very close to heaven itself. We are sweetly communing with the Lord. And then we close the book and we walk away and sometimes it's as if in the very next moment the trap has been laid. And the very words that we had just read, the very word from God that had given us exhortation and instruction on how to live and walk in righteousness, we stumble right over it because the trap has been laid and our guard has now come down. Or it may deceive us into believing that the very things that are for the good of our souls are actually unbearable. How many of you have sinned before and afterwards have found it very difficult to read the Word of God? I imagine that's probably a very common experience. You sin. Now you... You can't bear to, to approach the Word of God. Is it because there's something in the Word that says that a sinner should never hear from God again? That, that once you have sinned, you've banned yourself from the Holy Book from that day forward? Or is it because your sin has deceived you into believing that the very one who delights to show mercy to wretched sinners 
has told you to stay away has become to you nothing more than one who would condemn you forever. And so like Adam and Eve in the garden, you have to hide yourself in shame. That's a lie. That's deceit. Perhaps you know as well that the Lord's day has been given to the people of God for their refreshment, for their instruction. You've often delighted in it. You've, you've enjoyed it. You've rejoiced in it. You've been brought holy repentance through it. You've been strengthened to walk faithfully with your God because of it. You've, you've felt at times as if you were, in essence, joined to the heavenly cloud of witness. And then you stumble into sin deceit, it convinces you that the Lord's day will be nothing more for you than a day of guilt and shame. And that for your own good and for the good of your own soul, you ought to absent yourself from it. Newton wrote of this very experience in another of his hymns. I love the holy day of rest. Jesus meets His gathered saints. Sweet day of all the week the best. For its return my spirit pants. Yet often through my unbelief it proves a day of guilt and grief. It is not the Lord who speaks to you. Brothers and sisters, it is not the Lord who tells you keep away. We are not at Mount Sinai hearing the thunderous voice of God terrified at the flashing of lightning and the fire on the mountain and hearing from God Himself in this thunder to stay away from the mountain lest you die. No, we have come to Mount Zion. We've come to the city of the King. And in this city, the King is always bidding these weary sinners come and to eat from the tree of life and so live. Zion Garden of Eden has been opened. The guardian cherubs have been removed. And access to God is always granted. It is the sinful passions of the flesh that uses deceit to wage war against your soul. And to rob you of the strength Then, of course, there are times when the passions just make an all-out assault. There's no warning. There's no signal of the coming temptations. They just appear as if over the horizon you can look out and you can see a great army and it is just charging after you. Neither is it the case that they 
They make weak assaults and then immediately retreat. Temptation is often like being in a battle that is constant and you you can't see it coming to an end. Perhaps you're able to fight off the first round of soldiers, but then what happens? There's more and more and more and more that, that come and you feel yourself completely outnumbered and you feel that there is no escape at all. And the only thing left to do is to to wave the white flag and to just give in. And perhaps you even reason that if I I just give in to the assaults of of temptation and sin, perhaps then I I will have some relief in this battle. Sin has no mercy wages war to the death. It only wants to enslave and to conquer your soul. It is always in opposition to God and it always opposes the Spirit of God that is in you. No matter how constant and how hopeless its assaults appear to be, succumbing to those temptations is, is never the answer. It's never the right strategy. You have to remember, friends, you have to remember that God fights on your behalf. It is God who is your rock. You have to remember that He who is in you now is greater than He who is in the world. And that doesn't mean that He's going to spare you from ever being surrounded on all sides, from from ever feeling absolutely desperate. It is the work of God to train us to be completely and totally dependent upon Him. And so if the war against the flesh were simply a matter of it out of existence. Very often our battles are most like those of Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah. The Assyrian Empire, the most powerful empire on earth, made its way down to the city of Jerusalem and it came from the north and from the south and the west and the east. And as they made their way down to Jerusalem, They conquered every single city in Israel as if it was nothing. They completely surrounded Hezekiah in Jerusalem and even sent messengers to him to mock him and to try and convince him and and the people that there was no hope for them. There would be no victory and that the Lord whom they serve would never deliver them. Rob Shekai, the messenger, the Assyrian, is very often like temptation. The Lord won't deliver you. There is no one here to save you. Hezekiah had no way of escape. He had no means of winning. He did not have a great army that could defeat them. He was covered on every side and he had no strength at all. 
So what did he do? He turned to the Lord. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed in desperate prayer for deliverance. And then the Lord came. After Hezekiah had no other alternative but to cast himself before the Lord and to cry out for his saving might. Then it was that the Lord sent the angel of the Lord to strike down in a single night 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and to give Jerusalem victory over their enemies in the power of God. In our war against the passions of the flesh, that is often how the Lord deals with us and sanctifies us. He permits those temptations to rage within us. He, he allows us to see just how vast and evil the army of sin is within us until finally we become desperate enough to cry out for help. Because of our, our natural stubbornness, it is often quite some time before that day actually arrives. We completely cast ourselves on the mercies of God. We'd like those victories to be won on our own. We'd like to be able to say to the Lord, Lord, look at this serpent that I just crushed with my feet, and yet we forget that there's only one who has the power to crush the head of Satan. The Lord. So our battle often rages because we are fighting the passions of the flesh in the power of the flesh. So what are we to do? Peter tells us here to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So surely there are things that can be done to obey this command in the strength of the Spirit and not by the flesh. So what are some of these, these things? We, we, we can't go through all of them. I just want to give you a, a few points to keep in mind. But I would strongly recommend to you John Owen's work, Mortification of Sin, much more thorough explanation as to how to, to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. But here are a few things. Number one, one thing that we, we must do is that in faith, we must really and truly cling to the promises of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says there, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You go into battle not armed with your own resolves, not armed with your own willpower and ready to face the enemy head on. No, what Peter says is that you must look above and beyond the enemy 
must raise your eyes heavenward and fix them on the King who is your Savior. You must cling to that promise that it is the Lord and the Lord alone who can rescue you from all of your afflictions and deliver you from all of your woes, including the passions of the flesh. Which leads, secondly, to the need for desperate prayer. And the Apostle Paul describes his own battle with sin in Romans 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, he says, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. How does he conclude this conflict? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul looks at himself and he sees and he acknowledges and despises that remaining sin that is within him. He does not look within himself and see some great, amazing person. He doesn't see a, a man who is filled with all of his own righteousness, he looks at himself and he sees a, a wretched man who has a mind and who has a, a desire to, to please the Lord and to obey His Word and yet not the ability to carry it out. There, there is this battle raging within him. He is a wretched man. Who will deliver him from this body of death? What does he do? He, he looks up to the Lord. Who will save me? It's the Lord. In desperate prayer, in the midst of the temptations assaulting you, in the midst of the battle raging, you do not look at yourself as if you are David fighting Goliath. You do not have a powerful pebble to throw at his head. You're Hezekiah. You have no power at all. Surrounded on all sides. And the only solution you have is to cry out to God. And to cry and to cry and to cry. Until he delivers you from the assault. And then third and lastly, you labor to replace those passions of the flesh, those, those old passions. You labor to replace them with new ones. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 2, that we are to long pure spiritual milk. If you remember, as we, we looked at this, this, this certainly includes the Word, but it really encompasses the whole Christian way of life. This longing for God. This longing for 
righteousness, this longing for obedience and faithfulness, this longing, yes indeed, for, for more and more of His Word. You, 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 you fan the flame of those desires. You, you feed them daily. You train your mind as well. Verse 14 of chapter 1, Peter says that as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The, the, the sin that we lived in was caused, at least in a major way, by our, our ignorance, our lack of knowing God, our, our lack of knowing His Word. You you remedy that ignorance by more of God and more of His Word. You long for it. And you pray those desperate prayers that the Lord Himself would give you more of a burning desire for holiness and righteousness. If you fight constantly in this life, depending wholly upon the work of the Lord, solely upon the work of the King. You cast yourself at His feet in this battle. And the promise that we have in Scripture is that He will deliver you. That He will always provide a way out of the temptation. But that will not come in your own strength. And so you Look to the promises of God. You, you pray in desperation to the Lord for deliverance. You, you train your conscience. You train your mind with more and more of the knowledge of God. And that's how you work war in the power of the Spirit. And it's to deliver us from this temptation. Amen. So let's go to the Lord again. Father, again, it is our great desire that we would have more of You. That we, when sin rages within us, would withstand those assaults not in our own strength, but in Your power. That as we are surrounded on every side, we would not be looking at the greatness of our enemy, but the greatness of our God. And Lord, that You would be our rock so that once delivered, we would be able to sing Your praises all the more that You are the Lord who is steadfast in love and faithfulness and will deliver me from all my so, Father, strengthen us and guard us in this way, we pray in Jesus' name.